the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. This week, we're talking about debt. But before we get to that, everyone owes me a drink order and a rant (laughs) or rave. So, Rick, what are you having, and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, Jason, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a drink today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit under the weather with some kind of a cold, and so I think I need a whiskey, and I'll have it with a splash of water instead of a rock. This week, I'm ranting about the social platform formerly known as Twitter. I had two-factor authentication set up with my Twitter account, In the meantime, I've switched phones. I cannot get access to my Twitter account. And they keep telling me to fill out this customer service form. Then each time I do that, I get an email telling me how to recover my password. And at the bottom, it says, if none of these work, fill out a customer service form. And so I'm in some kind of Twitter circle of hell. And I think all the people at Twitter are gone. Nobody's minding the shop over there except for the crazy lunatic. So screw you, Twitter. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, to help Rick with his cold, I think I'll have a hot toddy. And I'm kind of surprised that I haven't ranted about this before, but today I'm ranting about the discontinuation of the online magazine Real Life. So Real Life was one of my absolute favorite things to read online. It produced short essays that had to do with mostly technology and the way that technology fits in our lives. It had so many good writers contribute to it. And I'm not really sure what happened, but it went defunct several months ago. You can still go to reallife.com and read the archived material. But hey, if there's anybody out there who wants to restart this website, please hit me up. I'm on board. (laughs) So Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a whiskey sour, and I'm going to rave, since everyone else is ranting, about the Criterion Channel. The Criterion Channel has just been hitting it for me recently. They're currently doing Hal Hartley films, as well as high school horror films. Earlier this summer, they did all the Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart westerns. And these are all things that are really hard to find in the typical streaming services and the demise of video stores. Mm. I mean, I guess it's my mini rant within my rave is that streaming gives us a lot less than it appears to give us. And I'm glad that someone out there in the world of streaming is trying to keep some less than popular things going. And I also love Mm. the fact that Criterion Channel... It's not as hoity-toity as the Criterion Collection is. They're willing to do some bad stuff (laughs) if it's bad in an interesting way. And I admire their tendency to dip into the schlocky when it's interesting because that's also a category that's disappearing from popular culture right now. Can we use that as a tagline for our podcast now? (laughs) Dip into the schlocky. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rick, I know you want to talk about debt, but I think you owe us an explanation. Oh my God, I'm going to make so many of these jokes today. <laughs> well, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in relation to debt. 
So debt has been in the news a lot lately, particularly in relation to the Biden administration's attempt to forgive student loan debt and whether that's a good thing or not. And I think it brings to the fore the fact that debt has an odd function within our modern capitalist societies. On the one hand, the economy cannot function without debt. It provides the oil that eases the friction of production, circulation, and consumption. But on the other hand, there's a lot of moral language surrounding debt. In many languages, English is one, German is another, the word for debt is related to or even the same as the word for guilt or sin. During the financial crisis of 2007-2008, It wasn't uncommon to hear reprobation for those who took out mortgages that they couldn't afford. And there was a lot of beating up of people who, quote, walked away from their, quote, obligations. This same mixture of morality and economics is exposed by Marx in relation to both debt and the moral value that we put on saving money. But Marx points out that the Friday payday, or even the bi-weekly payday, is the first advance of credit. On this system, labor works before they're paid, therefore they lend their labor power and the value that their labor power produces to the capitalist. Mm -hmm. But this form of debt's never really seen as morally suspect, nor are the thousands of bankruptcies that capitalists like Donald Trump have gone through. A lower-class blue-collar worker, on the other hand, finds that they are no longer able to afford to pay back their debt, and somehow that gets called a sin. But a billionaire who walks away from their obligations, well, that's seen as, quote, good business. So why do we have this weird dual relationship to debt? Is debt a moral obligation? Is debt a moral question at all? Should we all just walk away from our debts? Why does it seem more catastrophic if we all walked away from our debts than global climate change does? So, Rick, one of you mentioned in the opening, I think is worth talking about, is debt a moral relation or is it an economic relation or how is it a mixture of the two? Yeah, this to me is really the center of this question, because there are moral prohibitions against certain forms of economic relations in the Bible, for example. So prohibitions against lending money with interest, although that's usually couched in lending that to a brother or sister. And so then the question is, who counts as my brother and my sister? What interests me is the way in which in a Christian context, A lot of our language that surrounds the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and the sin they incurred, all of this is couched almost all the time in economic terms. We incur a debt to God, and that debt has to be paid off, so now sin is a debt. And then the flip side is also true. Doesn't that mean then that debt is itself a sin and that Jesus comes and repays I mean, just think about the word redemption for a second. Our younger listeners might not remember this, but my mom used to collect coupons from the newspaper and go to the store and 
redeem that, right? Mm -hmm. So the term redemption is an economic term. And we so easily move back and forth from the economic to the moral without recognizing that perhaps the economic is becoming our standard for moral judgments rather than the other way around. I like that you brought up usury right at the top here, because we know that in both Christianity and Islam that usury is prohibited. And one of the things that we know in our current late capitalist stage is that usurious loans can lead to literally unsustainable debt burdens for borrowers. Yeah. So, you know, high interest rates cause the total repayment amount to far exceed the original principal, making it difficult or maybe even impossible for borrowers to repay the debt in a reasonable time frame. But I think that the other thing that is problematic about this relationship between debt and sin is that it overlooks the social costs. Mm-hmm. The cycle of debt caused by usury can have and does often have broader social costs, right? Individuals who are burdened by debt are less economically productive. They're more reliant on social safety nets and less able to contribute positively to their communities. And I think in our contemporary economy in the U.S., those most usurious loans come in the form of payday loans or... Student loans. Student mm-hmm. loans, high-interest credit cards. In other words... For those most in need, borrowing money is also most expensive. Right. And this is another way, again, in which there is a kind of implicit tax on being poor in a capitalist economy. Those who are well off have cheaper access to money than those who are most in need of it. And that's another social cost as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the moral language is it usually only functions on one side. It's for the debtor, right? You must pay off your debts. You don't want to be a deadbeat. Mm. But if you look at the way in which the creditor is talked about, why can they charge such high interest, right? The supposed language is that they are taking a risk. And because of the possibility that the debt won't get repaid, that justifies how much interest they can charge. So there's a strange disconnect between the two sides of the equation. Like On the one hand, you must pay back your debts. On the other hand, why should I charge such higher interest? It's because I am taking a risk and I need to be compensated for my risk. So there's this odd disconnect. I mean, it was summed up really well for me in a tweet I saw somewhere about student loan debt where someone was saying, you advance thousands of dollars to a ceramics French double major. It's really on you, (laughs) not on me. Like, you made a huge mistake. And that's not how it's talked about. I mean, not to mention, as you also said at the beginning, when the wealthy default on their debts, it's not considered to really be an issue. So it's the selective use of the moral language, which is usually that on the borrower rather than on the person who's lending out the money. Although, of course, as you mentioned, right, the old biblical prohibitions were much more concerned about the lender. Yeah. Some of the stuff gets really weird. Like, I'm thinking about Jack LeGoff's book about debt. It just seemed weird that you could use money to make more money. It seemed almost a sin against nature or a sin against God in some way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, let me just go ahead and state explicitly what I think we're all implicitly saying here, which is that it's not so much that we have a debt problem. We have a usury problem. Mm. And usury exploits vulnerable borrowers. Right. It preys on individuals who have limited financial resources or credit options. And so 
borrowers facing financial hardships or urgent needs are more likely to accept high interest loans, which then trap them in a cycle of debt and financial instability. So high usury rates exacerbate economic inequality by transferring wealth from borrowers to lenders, Mm -hmm. particularly when the borrowers are already disadvantaged. And this wealth transfer hinders efforts to address income disparities and promote economic justice more broadly. And I think this can be seen most clearly if you take an example like Donald Trump. So I was living in New York during one of his bankruptcy proceedings. There were five banks at the time that had lent him significant amounts of money. And these are banks like Chase Manhattan, Morgan Stanley, big banks. And they realized that if they're going to not lose all of their money, they were going to have to pay to prop him up for a period of time so he could get back on his feet and at least pay most of the principal back, if not all of it. And so they actually funded him. In other words, they advanced him even more money to keep him afloat so that he could pay back this money. Now, look at someone who takes out a payday loan, which is, I think, the most usurious of all credit that is extended in our society. No one is going to prop the borrower in that case up so that they could pay more. So there, I think, Lee, we see exactly the point that you were making really clearly painted. There is a difference between different kinds of debtors, and the difference exacerbates economic inequality. Can I go back to your initial point, though, about this relationship between debt and sin? Because I think that it's important for us to remember that the redemption Jesus represents for Christianity or Jesus's crucifixion represents for Christianity is not redemption in the sense that your grandma redeemed her coupons <laughs> at the grocery store. It's an act of grace. And in that sense, it's a gift that is not built on the model of a repayment of a debt. So I wonder if the easy transference of the language of sin and guilt to economic language of debt is just a misreading of a relationship between a borrower and a lender. Well, within the Christian tradition, at least, you do see these two ways of understanding why it is that God would become human and then die. The one reading is, as you say, that this is just a gift, a result of God's love for humanity, and it's out of an excess of love that God forgives the sins. There is another reading put most forcefully by Anselm of Canterbury that says, in sinning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve incurred a debt. The debt was to the infinite, i.e. to God, and therefore it's impossible for finite beings like us to pay it back. And so we incur the punishment of that debt, we're living under that debt, unless and until it can be paid back, it has to be paid back by an infinite, and so God has to become human in order to pay back the debt. That reading brings in this whole economic relationship. And then the love reading and the gift reading gets shoved to the side. 
you know, I mean, this is not a theological podcast. <laughs> but I think, again, one of the real problems here is that in Christianity, we know that the obligation to give, to treat the least of these as you would treat me, as Jesus says, is a all-consuming, all-the-time obligation. And even in Islam, charity is a cot. Giving to those in need is an integral part of Ramadan. Hmm. And so we somehow are skipping the imperative to give and to help right. and weirdly focusing on this debt thing. I mean, that makes me think of David Graeber's book on debt, you know, where he kind of makes the argument, as you were saying, Lee, earlier, we don't have a debt problem, we have a usury problem, that to some extent, debt is integral to social relations. We're born, someone cares for us, and we're born owing a debt. And for Graeber, the problem becomes not so much debts in the social sense, but when debts become monetized and when there becomes this idea of paying them off rather than letting them circulate. Because part of what Graeber is talking about is that debts circulate. Like your parents care for you and you might pay them back by caring for them, but you also might pay them back by caring for others, by paying it forward rather than back or some combination of the two. But the one thing that we find abhorrent would be, and I can't remember, he gives an instance of someone actually did this. I can't remember who it was. Where like, you want to sever all relations with your parents. And so you present them with a check, you know, mom and dad, here's the amount room and board would have cost when I was a kid, <laughs> I'm done with you, right? The fact that that seems so abhorrent to us illustrates the way in which these fluid social debts are integral to our social relations, and the problem becomes monetizing them and the idea that they can be finally paid off. Because mm. right? I think a lot of us feel like we owe debts that we can never totally pay off. I love this point, Jason, because the reason it is abhorrent to us is because at some level, we understand a parent's care for their children as a gift, mm -hmm. not as a loan. Right. right? <laughs> and that's why we find it offensive to think that it could just be paid off. But when we erase that notion or when we elide that notion that a gift is not a debt or a gift is not a incurrence of debt, then we get into these other problems of, you know, well, how do I pay off this gift? I mean, that is just a misunderstanding of gift. And that's where I think we have to go back to the religious notion of charity or grace or giving. Mm -hmm. Charity is not a loan. Charity is a gift. Yeah. And I want to insert also in this gift, love. Love is an important function here. This idea of the gift doesn't incur an obligation. And I think the question is, at what point do we incur an obligation? So I don't have an obligation to my parents because they cared for me, but I do have an obligation to my creditor who lends me money in order to go to school. And the question is, why are these different? The obligation that you have to your parents is because you love them. It's not because of what they gave to you. But that means then that there is no love in the economy. <laughs> Kill some priests. <laughs> <laughs> Here to testify to that truth. But then I wouldn't call the fact that my parents have cared for me a debt. Right. Because I agree with you, Lee. It's a gift that they have given me. And I wouldn't call all sorts of things that I do in the name of caring for my friends or my loved ones an obligation that they now have to pay yeah. back. Mm -hmm. 
But it is interesting how quickly we are to say when someone does something for us, I owe you one. Right. And to reinsert it back into a kind of an economy. Yeah. My closest friendships are usually marked by the fact that at any given moment, we have bought the other person drinks or lunch or coffee or something. There's a floating sense of this goes back and forth. You know, this is also a point that Graeber makes that it would be kind of a dissolution in the relationship if I started pointing out that when we go out for coffee, my friend gets a cappuccino and I get a medium black coffee. And so it's not at all equitable, <laughs> the pricing of those two things. I love this example, Jason, because, you know, when you're out with friends and you say, let's just split the check evenly, it's fine. The only time it's not fine is when someone there is not a friend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. But let's just also bracket that if I'm out with the two of you and a graduate student joins us, let them pay what they owe rather than split it evenly. Because as a graduate student or even as a young professor, I've been at tables with fairly well-known professors in the world of continental philosophy who are ordering flights of vodka and the most expensive things on the menu. And then they say, well, let's just split the check. Yeah. But again, I think that's because the gathering there is not all equals. It's not all friends. And the reason that we can keep this, as Jason called it, a sort of floating economy is because we all are friends. There's a sense in which we understand that, yeah, it's going to come around when it comes around. And the minute it stops doing that, I mean, I think we've all been in this spot, you know, the minute it stops doing that, you're like, do I know this person? Like, is this person really somebody I want to hang out with? Yeah. But there again, the introduction of friendship is the end of this being an economic relationship. And then I would say it's a relationship of a certain kind of love. In a relationship of love, there is no role for this kind of obligation. And therefore, whenever we do talk about obligation, then we're talking about the end of all other social relations other than the brutally economic social yeah, relations. Yeah, the relationship yeah. between friends is a relationship of grace and charity and love, as yeah. you say. I completely mm-hmm. agree. But it's also, to me, unsurprising that the aspects of Christianity that you've been teasing out, Lee, often in the United States today, and I think in other capitalist economies, are the ones least frequently talked about. Right. You know, since we're talking about this whole back and forth between friendship, part of the reason that existed, in my mind, or part of the reason that you split the check rather than itemize, is you're also doing a favor to your server. And it disturbs me a bit that technologically there's so many means to render those floating debts directly payable. You can whip out your Venmo, do the math, and suddenly pay someone back. And I find Venmo so disturbing. I don't use it that much, but it it disturbs me that I can see the transactions of my friends on it. (laughs) Like, I don't want to know what Mm. you people are doing. But the other thing I find, and we're talking about here about Venmo, is this ability to make every tiny, minute little debt payable. Right. I find it to be an erosion of sociality in the same way, going back to David Graeber, when he's talking about the social way in which we constantly extend and receive things from each other without demanding direct payment, his favorite examples are always asking for the time and asking directions. Because it points out that when someone asks you what time it is or directions, you don't treat them like a market transaction. You don't say, well, what are you going to give me for it? (laughs) If you know, you know. But it always strikes me when I read those examples in Graeber and 
this goes back to the Venmo thing, is that like, who asks anyone time or directions anymore? <laughs> In the age of the smartphone, those are dying social niceties because everyone knows what time it is and everyone just Google Maps it. I feel like there's a certain social decay when we're not out there extending and receiving these little gifts back and forth in our lives. Yeah, social decay is exactly right. And I like the fact that you said one of the reasons that among friends will say, let's just split the check is because it's easier on the server. And among friends, there's a relationship of trust that makes it easier to be charitable, literally makes it easier to be charitable. And when we find ourselves in situations where we're among strangers or among people who we don't already have these trust relationships with, the default disposition under capitalism is to mistrust mm -hmm. people. And therefore, every gift is a loan. Every extension of charity implies an obligation. And so we aren't able to be charitable. That point reminds me of one of the jokes that Freud tells in his book, Jokes in the Relation to the Unconscious, where a guy borrows $200 from a friend of his because he can't pay the rent and he can't pay his bills. And later that day, the friend who lends him money sees him in a restaurant eating filet mignon. And the guy goes up to him and he said, what the hell are you doing? You asked me for $200 and now you're eating filet mignon in the restaurant? And the guy says, well, let me get this straight. I can't eat filet mignon when I don't have money. I can't eat filet mignon when I do have money. When the hell am I supposed to eat filet mignon? <laughs> Fair. I updated it a little bit. He uses the example of salmon mayonnaise, but I yeah, well, updated it. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, no, no. But if Jason is right, that there is a push to make all obligations monetizable and therefore paid back in terms of money, that means then our moral language easily slips into our economic understanding. Therefore, the economic system of capitalism seems to be the only moral system because we've started using all of this moral language to talk about debt and we don't call into question the very morality of capitalism itself. Mm, preach. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Lee, you mentioned earlier different ways in which different people's debts are treated within a capitalist economy. 
the debts of rich people are treated as regular good business practice, whereas the debts of the rest of us are treated as moral obligations such that if we don't pay them back, we fail. And I'm just really interested in why it is that we could not really recognize that we have these two totally incompatible ideas about whether there's a moral obligation or not. I mean, everyone agrees there's a financial obligation, but companies declare bankruptcy all the time and they stiff their suppliers, they stiff their workers. Nobody ever seems to think that this is a moral issue. But I do remember during the economic crisis, mm -hmm. all of this moral language being used to talk about people who walked away from mortgages they could no longer afford. How do we keep this contradiction in our head? Well, I just want to say for the record that I don't think that in any moral universe that makes sense to me that someone who is in need and unable to pay their debts has morally failed. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. But I'm wondering whether we're among a very few people who take that attitude toward debt. Because, as I said, there is all of this, well, you agreed to these terms when you took out the loan. And so, therefore, you have to pay this back. And the have to there seems to rest on a moral question mm -hmm. rather than any other. It's not a natural question. It's simply, if you don't, somehow you have failed morally. Right. I just want to say that I don't think that we're in a minority of people who believe that, though. Mm. I mean, I do think that us proles in our normal, you know, interactions with one another, in general, people understand that. People understand that, you know, I may be pissed, I may be put out by somebody who borrowed from me and can't repay it, but... If they can't repay it, they can't repay it. It's not a moral right. failure. Like, I understand that they right. can't. And I think one of the things that gets occluded in this moralizing language is the way in which, especially in our country, in the United States, a lot of what people take out debt for are the necessary conditions of their existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, mortgages, people need places to live. Education being another huge one, student debt, people need an education in order to be able to survive and make money in our society. And then the other big source of a lot of debt, and this is relatively unique to the United States, is medical debt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're talking about things that, first of all, people need to survive. Second of all, that weren't always funded by an individual debt model. Right. Well, healthcare has always been a mess, but education was not always – I mean, student debt has taken on a bigger part of paying for education than it has. So one of the things that often falls out of the picture is the way so much of our social existence and our very ability to survive and thrive in our society is made possible by debts, right? Because the big language around debt, the moral language is right. you chose to do that. And I think that with a lot of these debts mm, – People don't choose medical debt for crying out loud. Right. And even college, I would argue, it's a real forced choice for a lot of people. So to present it as a freely undertaken choice is to fundamentally confuse the issue. I really challenge anyone, any one of us, any one of our listeners, to find someone who's struggling with debt in which the majority of their debt is not one of those things that you just mm -hmm. mentioned. High interest loans, mortgage, medical debts, or student loan debts. 
I mean, it's not like when we talk about the debt crisis in the United States, that there's all these people that are out there that are just like taking out bank loans for, I don't know, like, you know, for vacations right. and then not repaying them. I mean, that's just not the reality of the world that we right. live in. Also, I would add to that auto loans are another big source. And we know that people who have less income are being forced more and more to live further and further away from their place of employment, such that having a car becomes crucial. So that's, again, not another choice. It's a necessity that's built in. And also, I think we need to point out that in a capitalist economy, no one would be lending money at all to high-risk people if there weren't money in it, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're back to usury. <laughs> exactly. It's quite lucrative to put people under these obligations. And then the moral language around it is simply a script for the collection agency to use to try to cajole you to pay back your student loan debt or your car payment or what have you. Right. Yeah. And we're also not considering the immense distance between the rate at which incomes rise and the rate at which expenses rise. You know, mm -hmm. over the last 20 years, just if you talk about the difference between the median household income and the median household rent, the difference is more than 100% and the difference between how they've risen. So, I mean, can you really blame people for borrowing and not knowing that income is not going to rise in the way that costs rise? And we've been talking a lot about you know the moral and the economic. And I think one of the things that has to be underscored is that the moral aspect of debt or the way it's presented morally fundamentally obscures it as a collective situation and individuates. Yeah. Right? I remember years ago during Occupy Wall Street or the Occupy Wall Street that happened here in Maine, Occupy Maine, my friend and former colleague, George Cofensis, we were at a rally and he gave a speech about debt, trying to make debt, student debt, etc. one of the big issues that was coming out of Occupy. And someone afterward pulled him aside and said, don't do this. You're going down a bad path because those people have to be taken individually responsible for like the debts they've taken. They bought a house that's too big or they majored in ceramics. You know, these individual choices have to be highlighted. And one of the things the moral language does is it focuses on the supposed individual choice and not the actual very real collective condition that underlies it. Yeah. I mean, 61% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hear the right in the United States talking about the attempt to eliminate some student loan debt or even all student loan debt as being a gift to those who are well off. And I think that covers over the fact that a number of people who have student loan debt are relying on that student loan to get an education that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford. And so without this debt, then only those who are already well off can get a college education. And if we want to change that, if we're not going to make school free, then we're in this student loan situation in which I think the obligation to repay needs to be other than individual, as Jason was mm -hmm. saying. I think it has to be a social responsibility. We've been talking about this sort of division between the moral and the economic, but I also think it's important to point out that even on an economic level, the rentless pursuit of debt doesn't make any real sense. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about the fact that student loan debt is... 
I mean, it's not a bubble, but it's producing this slow drain on the economy of generations who aren't going to buy houses, who aren't going to have kids, aren't going to do all these other things society and the economy supposedly needs them to do. You know, if you remember, there was this famous speech, I can't remember the guy's name. It was after the 2008 crash, it was on the trading floor, and it's kind of started the Tea Party movement about how he didn't want his money to be used to bail other people out. And it was pushing this language of what was driving the 2008 crash were all these mortgages that were irresponsible, you know, the federal government and so on. And like, even if that was true, those mortgages and the houses and everything didn't just benefit the individuals. That sort of sustained our economy. Right. One of the other things about the individualizing language of debt is it doesn't just obscure the social dimension of the need. It also obscures the fact that society benefits or the economy. I don't want to conflate the two. The economy benefits from people having this money. And it makes it sound as if it's a fully individual, you know, first of all, I don't care. Like if some rich kid gets his student loan debt forgiven or more than one rich kid, if a couple get mixed in with a bunch of people who are struggling to pay off their student loans, I honestly do not care. I mean, there's a certain point at which part of a universalizing rule is, yes, some people don't need it. But that's a small price to pay in terms of the many people who desperately need it. Right. Yeah. And I also think it's important to remember something that Rick brought up right at the top of this episode, which is that we fundamentally misunderstand who are the lenders and who are the borrowers in a late capitalist society. And the population of lenders are the workers. These are the people who are waiting two weeks or a month to get paid for the labor that they've lent to their employers. That's one population of lenders. The other population of lenders are the lenders who are lending to the workers usuriously Mm -hmm. and making it impossible for them to pay their debts. You know, of all the workers we're lending to our employers usuriously, (laughs) right? Then there would be a whole different phenomenon here and we'd have an entirely different discourse about who's doing the morally wrong thing. Right. If I said, okay, you can pay me on Friday, but you'll have to pay me 110% more each day. Yeah, but there's a 10-point vig on that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, and did I mention the $300 processing fee? Yeah, right. And I've actually let a loan servicer buy this out, so you owe them too. (laughs) We have this language about what's good debt and what's bad debt. For example, mortgages are considered to be good debt. And I think we don't even seriously consider what damage our support in the U.S. for mortgages and therefore home buying does to the entire economy. Mm -hmm. Private ownership of housing is really disastrous for the availability of housing in general. And for our listeners who are not from the U.S., let me just explain that you can deduct the interest you pay on your mortgage from your taxes. It's a gift to people who can own their own housing, and there's not really a huge incentive for there to be multifamily housing and to increase housing density. Mm -hmm. And so why is that called good debt? 
Whereas someone who needs to get something on their credit card because they're not paid enough, why is that bad debt and somehow a moral failure? Yeah, I mean, why are tax credits considered credits at all? Why are they not considered, you know, debts? Right. I mean, on that note, in Malcolm Harris's book, Palo Alto, History of California Capitalism and the World... He cites someone in the Hoover administration around the attempt to make private housing mortgages a big part of the U.S. economy. And there's this great line. He cites someone who says, a man who owns a house can't be a communist. He's too busy. (laughs) The private ownership of housing was both an economic and political strategy. It's one of those historical facts that often gets unmentioned. And as a communist paying a mortgage, I feel the pain of being too busy. (laughs) Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. And you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. I think it's time to hit directly an issue that we've been talking around and has come up here and there throughout our discussion, and that is the question of forgiveness of student loans. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll just come clean and say, I think all student loans should be forgiven immediately without any question. I don't understand why there is pushback against this. I don't understand why this is a problem. Except the rhetoric about the elites and everyone who went to college is an elite. So that's one argument. And the other is the moral argument. It's they took on this obligation in freedom and knowingly and they chose it. Therefore, they ought to pay it back. But I'm compelled by neither of those. And I just don't understand why this is a question at all. Well, let me just say that is not the moral argument. The moral argument is banks and the federal government targeted 18-year-olds and Mm. lent them money under conditions that they could not have possibly understood. Mm. And the compounding interest of student loans is something that you cannot expect anyone, and I'm talking about grown-ass adults, not just 18-year-olds, could have possibly understood the impact of. I mean, one of the biggest problems with student loans is the compounding interest rates. Most people who own student loans today have only, you know, like I'm going to use myself, like I've only ever just paid interest 
interest mm-hmm. on my mm-hmm. student loans. So my student loans today are greater than they were when I borrowed them. And by the way, I'll just say this on the record that I do not intend to ever pay off my student loans. They're either going to be forgiven or I'm going to die with them. I mean, that's just like how it's going to happen. So I don't think that the moral argument is against the borrowers. I think the moral argument is against the lenders. But I do think that there are reasonable economic reasons to forgive student loans. And one, maybe the most obvious one, is that it currently costs the federal government more to service student loans than what they're Mm -hmm. getting in repayments. Mm -hmm. So forgiving them all would be literally saving money. Right. There's a notion about the economy that's a half economic, half moral notion that rules over all of this. Because when you're not actually getting money from it, then what is even the economic sense of it, right? We're coming to the crisis point where global warming is destroying more wealth than not doing something about it. It's making profits. But yet people talk about what makes economic sense. They're always talking about this weird mixture of a moral notion of individual responsibility and economic notion of risk and profitability, and it's all sort of mixed up and intertwined. The moral argument lost a lot of its weight, obviously, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Everybody stopped repaying their student loans, and guess what? America survived. Right. You know, so what is the argument other than the moral argument now? Because the economic argument is not there. It costs more to have these loans outstanding than it would to cancel them. The economic argument is also not there in as much as the most productive members of our society economically are the ones most burdened by student loan debt. We can't sustain this model anymore. Right. But one of the interesting things about capitalism is the way in which it opens the possibility for the person in the middle to make the most off of any transaction. I've mentioned this in the past, but Chicago became the city it is by being in the middle of a lot of things. And so if you touch a product between the producer and the buyer, then you can make a lot of money without doing anything. And Lee, you twice mentioned servicing companies. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are making bank servicing student loans because even though some of the debt is owed to the federal government, they're not doing the servicing themselves. They outsource that servicing. And that company is making a lot of money. A huge part of the economic argument is we now have to save the middle person. And I think another middle person are employers. One of the things that student loans do and it's hard to measure this, is they discipline the workforce. They keep people in jobs they might otherwise leave. Mm. And that's why, you know, mortgages are seen as breaking the backs of communists is they keep people working rather than going on strike, right? To go back to the COVID, yes, America kept functioning, but we did have the great refusal or the great realignment. You know, that possibility with people who left jobs and other sorts of things happened. That scared parts of our government. They want nothing like that to ever happen again. Right. They want to keep people, you know, their spirits broken by their loan payments and everything else. So you stay in your crappy job, accepting your crappy wages. And as soon as people started envisioning something else, because, you know, a government that said it can do nothing about all these things suddenly said, oh, yeah, we can do something. We can just make them go away. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, yeah. and it changed people's sense of what is possible and what is desirable in a ways that we're still contending with. 
And there are interests that want that not to happen again. Yeah, and this is not that long after the 2008 financial crisis right. where we saw that banks can be bailed out, auto companies can be bailed out. You know, I mean, like, it's not as if the idea of loan forgiveness is just a pipe dream in the American imagination anymore. It's a reality that we've all dealt with. So yeah, I mean, we can't just keep pretending as if we don't know that this is something that is actually possible. But I think that goes back to the issue of how social costs are apportioned. Mm -hmm. Because I think, Lee, earlier you were pointing out that those who have incredibly high debts are also more likely to use other government services, to visit an emergency room rather than a primary care physician, and otherwise incur costs for society at large. But somehow we're not able to see that as easily as we are able to see that if Chase Manhattan, well, now it's just called Chase, if Chase Bank goes under, that would affect our entire society. Yeah, yeah. I think the point Jason was making a little bit earlier can be formulated in this way. The invention of the individual is one of the greatest inventions of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the individualization of certain obligations versus other obligations is only made possible by the invention of this individual. And therefore, economic relations can now become moral relations. That might be a little bit of a chicken and an egg mm. thing. I'm not sure if capitalism wasn't the greatest invention of the individual. <laughs> but I do think that it's important for us to continue to press this question, like who was harmed by the forgiveness of student debt? I mean, banks have made hand over fist their money back yeah. in student loans. The federal government is spending more servicing student loans than it is getting back. So it's losing money every year by not forgiving student loans. So to me, this just isn't a complicated question. And, you know, of course I have to step back and say, is this because it would benefit me? Maybe that is. But I really don't think that that's the only reason. Well, I've paid off my student loans, and I'm also in the position of not seeing why this is a question at all. And so I don't have an interest other than I think it would be beneficial to the individuals and beneficial to the society to forgive all of these debts. And it's freakish to me that out of all the debts that people can incur, the one debt that isn't discharged in bankruptcy is student loans. Right. So you can declare bankruptcy yeah. and your car payments are restructured, your mortgage is restructured, your credit cards are forgiven, but no, your student loan stays the same. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember is that people who have outstanding student loans are, for the most part, still making payments. Right. I mean, it is crippling them to continue to make those payments. But when you look back to, for example, the relief checks that everyone got during COVID, whatever it was in total, four grand or something, you know, maybe the greatest influx to the economy at that moment would have been to forgive student loans. No. Right? Like you've got the people who have an income who are still producing who are burdened by these loans, for which $4,000 makes no difference whatsoever, but are the spenders, right. right? Like, you know, none of this makes any sense to me. 
Sorry, Jason, I thought you were going to say something. I did too, I think sorry. I did, but then I lost it. Now I'm like, I don't know what to say anymore, except for it's like, shit's fucked up and bullshit. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, I think that we can all agree that the only reason that student loans are not being forgiven is because the people who are going to benefit from continuing accumulation of profits by student loans are people who are the recipients of basically loans from the working force. Yeah, that's what I was going to say earlier. The student loan servicers being just one of them, but there are a lot of people who are invested in social dysfunction. You know, you see this with loans everywhere. Like there's this new series of apps that are basically kind of like credit cards, but I imagine they're worse than credit cards, which I see advertised even at the gas station. Like, or you could pay it with this thing and break it down to monthly payments. You know, part of the whole thing about debt is once debt becomes a source of revenue, there's a lot of vested interest in making it so people are unable to make a living, right? People are making a living off of the inability of a great many people to make a living. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've noticed recently on Amazon Prime, and I'm going to be honest, like I don't have a lot of debt other than student debt, but my Amazon card is, you know, it's up there. (laughs) But I've noticed recently on Amazon Prime that every time I buy something, they give me an offer to finance it. Mm -hmm. It's like usury is being promoted, right? You know, and I think, why would I do that? Yeah, I'm now seeing it everywhere. Almost any website I go to and check out, there's always this option. Or you could make four easy payments. Mm -hmm. You just click there and bam, you got it. It's easier to click that button and $23 sounds like much less than $200 because it is. Yeah. And so you just click the button. And you end up paying $800. (laughs) Right. But that's easier than figuring out how much I would actually owe by clicking the button. But Lee, there you point out, if we want to have a moral discussion about debt, then it's on the usurers. Usurers, yeah. Usurers rather than on the borrowers. That's the moral question. Once again, preach. (laughs) So we've been talking a lot about morality, the individual, and social dimensions. I think the last thing I want to say, which hasn't been said yet on this point, for me at least, is that the other thing that debt does is it obscures its financial role because people are often reluctant to talk about how much debt they have. Yeah. Right? Part of the moralizing shame means that we don't recognize ourselves. Like we debtors is a very difficult group to put together right. because of the incredibly individualizing sense that we all feel if like we could have done something better, righter, you know, whatever. And I think it's very different than we workers where there's a collectivity that's sort of manifest I think we need to get over ourselves and recognize that we are all debtors in the society and the conditions of our debt are unjust. Mm. Yeah, I just want to say that personally, as an individual, I think that, you know, never loan anything that you're not okay with not being paid back, Mm. right? Presume that loans are gifts. You know, if they get paid back, great bonus, but if they don't, 
There's no moral wrong being done there. I'm increasingly worried about the infusion of moral language around debt in the current United States. I think that the only purpose it serves is to prop up usurers. Mm. Well, to borrow a page out of Jason's book, the other purpose it serves is to prevent forms of solidarity. Mm -hmm. By moralizing debt, it's individualized, and by being individualized, we can't come together. As Jason says, we can't say, we the debtors. Right. That's the major benefit that this moral language has. Also, just want to remind everyone that in as much as a people can be kept indebted, demoralized, and afraid, they are incredibly <laughs> controllable. Mm. I'm not sure that we can do that much about our indebtedness, but we can do a little bit about how much we're afraid of it. Unite. Debtors of the world, unite. Yeah. <laughs> right. We debtors. I got your bar tabs. All right. I owe you one. <laughs> I don't. I'm going to consider it a gift. All right, guys. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye.